messages entitled Stepping Into a New Day. Stepping Into a New Day. We've been looking at the book of Joshua and um, being reminded that God has a land for each of us that is a place of, of blessing, of fruitfulness, a place of purpose. Um, God wants us to be living an abundant life, a spirit-filled life that he's promised to us. And he, he wants each of us to say, yes, truly, old things have passed away and all things have become new. And sometimes we say it, but we don't live it out. Or it's not a reality in our lives. We want it to be a reality, do we not, church? We want it to be a reality. And so we've been talking about stepping into a new day. And this morning we come to Joshua chapter 7. And I know that the, the title of the message sounds a little negative, but it's called Defeat in the Promised Land. Defeat in the Promised Land. Oh, boy, Pastor, where are you going? Do we have to come to church and hear, like, negative words? Well, sometimes we do. Right. Um, but but I just want you to know where there's bad news with God, there's always good news. Amen. And so we're going to we're going to get there this morning. OK. But this morning we're in Joshua chapter seven. I want to begin right by reading for us verses one through twelve. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Um, and if you have another translation there, that's fine. Or you can follow on the screen there behind me. It says says Joshua 7. Now remember, this is just after the walls of Jericho found fell down and the people had a great victory. Joshua 7, 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth Avon, east of, of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out I. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack I. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up, up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Cherubim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Father, we thank you for your word and pray, God, that you would use it to speak to us, to challenge us, to lead us in ways everlasting. 
And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And so it's the promised land. It's a new day. No more problems, right? No more struggles. Just victory and blessing, purpose and fruitfulness, right? Wrong. Wrong. As we'll see today, stepping into our new day, entering into the promised land is not a blank check for the blessings of God. You see, in spite of the fact that we've begun to experience the amazing work of God in our lives and the victory that he brings, in spite of the fact that we've begun to taste of the goodness of God and the abundant life that he has for us, in spite of the fact that we have experienced the incredible work of Christ in our lives to save us, to redeem us, to bring to us the blessings of heaven, none of that means that we can expect such to be the case no matter how we live, no matter what we do. But you see, yesterday's victory does not guarantee tomorrow's victory. Rather, the continued blessing of God upon our lives is always dependent upon us living in right relationship with God, continually living as God's people, living each day as he would have us to live. And so today we come to Joshua chapter 7, and I know that up to this point in our study in the, in the book of Joshua, we've been talking about victory and blessing and miracles, and we've seen how God has worked in amazing, powerful ways to lead his people into the promised land, into their new day. But chapter 7, you notice, introduces something different, a contrast. For as we begin to read chapter 7, we can't help but notice that the chapter begins with that word, but. But. I know a lot of times in the Bibles we have something negative happen, and it's but God. In this case, God was working, but it's, well, it's but the people. And immediately we're cued into the fact that something different is about to occur. And as we continue reading, we find that things did not go the way they were supposed to have gone. Things didn't turn out the way they were supposed to have turned out. We expect to read of one victory after another, but instead we read of defeat. Defeat in the promised land. And the reason? Given right up front in verse 1. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully. They sinned. They broke their covenant with God. And thus God withdrew his hand of blessing and protection from them. God left them on their own. And the result was a terribly embarrassing defeat. As we go through this chapter, I want us to see that the key verse, the focal point, the center point of the whole chapter is verse 12, which we read. Where God says the people cannot stand before their enemies. They, they, they turn their back before their enemies because they've been become devoted for destruction. And God says, listen, this is the focal point. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things among you. I will be with you no more. You see, notice God was threatening to remove his presence from among his people. And how disastrous that would be. You remember back in Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, God said to Joshua, Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. And Joshua needed to know that the presence of God would be with him if, if he and his people were to move forward into the land that God had for them. 
And in Joshua chapter 3, we spoke about how the ark of the Lord, which represents the presence of God, the ark of the Lord was placed in the middle of the Jordan River, began to take a step into the river right before anything happened. And then the waters rolled back. The ark was placed in the middle. So the waters rolled back and the people could pass through on dry ground. The presence of the Lord. In Joshua 6, we saw last week, the ark of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, is placed in the middle of the soldiers as they marched around Jericho each day. And then on that seventh day, marched around seven times, and at the end of it, gave a great shout, and a miracle took place. The walls came tumbling down, and the Israelites took the city. It was all because of the presence of the Lord. You see, the presence of God was with his people. And the presence of God was key to them experiencing victory, fruitfulness, and blessing. The presence of God among them was key to the people experiencing the abundant life that that God had for them. The presence of God was a key for them to experience all that God had promised to them. Without the presence of God, they were for sure a defeated people. In fact, in fact, without God's presence, it would have been better, as, as Joshua kind of insinuates, it would have been better for them to have never crossed over the Jordan. In fact, it would have been better for them to stay back in Egypt. They desperately needed God to be with them, even here in the promised land. But notice again, now God is threatening to remove his presence unless they remove from their midst that which ought not have been there. Well, how did they get to this place and what was happening here? Well, we, we read part of it, how Joshua sends a small army to, to capture the city of Ai, a city much smaller and much weaker than Jericho. But rather than experiencing the expected victory, the Israelites experienced defeat, retreating for their lives with, with 36 men killed. And the result was, we read, the people are melting with fear. And Joshua begins to cry out to God. Notice he's almost blaming God for the defeat as if God had somehow done something wrong. God, what are you going to do about this? And God responds to Joshua. Notice he says to Joshua, Joshua, get up. Stop your groveling, your complaining, your mourning. Just face the fact. The Israelites have sinned. Someone among your people has taken from Jericho devoted things. We'll talk about that in a minute. minute. Things that they were not supposed to have taken from Jericho. And God says, unless those things are removed from their midst, he he will remove his presence from them. And God gives the process that they need to follow. And so if you continue reading, you find that the next day, Joshua brings the whole nation together And takes them through this process whereby they narrow down to the culprit among them who had sinned, most likely by means of choosing lots. And so it goes from the whole nation of Israel to the tribe of Judah, to the clan of the Zerites, to the family of Zabdi, to the person and household of Achan. And thus Achan is revealed as the one who had transgressed against God by taking for himself the devoted things from Jericho. I want you to read with me here verses 20 and 21, where we read Achan's confession. It says, and Achan answered Joshua, 
Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them, and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. And so Achan confesses he had taken from, for himself an expensive imported cloak, about 200 shekels of silver, 50 shekels of gold, all of which he has hidden in a hole within his tent. Well, we go down to verse 24. Let me read for us verses 24 through 26 where we read of the punishment. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan and the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. And so Achan and his family and all that he owned were taken out to the Valley of Achor, and there they're destroyed. Just as, notice, just as everything from Jericho was to be destroyed, now Achan and his family are instead destroyed. I want you to bear with me. We're going to get to some lessons here this morning that we learned from this chapter. But there are a few key words or key thoughts that we need to hone in on this morning if we're to understand Joshua chapter 7 and what it is meant to teach us. The first is the word devoted things, and we saw this come up in Joshua chapter 6. The, Greek, the Hebrew word is, is, is charam, and Joshua, excuse me, my throat is dry here. It's hard to say when your throat is dry. Charam. But Joshua chapter 6, if you go back there, this is God's instructions, verses 18 and 19, God's instructions as the people are about to take, take Jericho. And he says, but you... Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. The word that's used there, haram, in the English Standard Version, the New International Version, is translated as devoted things. In the New American Standard, it's translated as things designated for destruction. In the King James Version, as accursed things. And basically, the word refers to those things that were meant to be devoted to the Lord, including certain Things or people that were to be destroyed. That is, all people, all livestock, any living thing was to be destroyed. In other words, here's the thought. You're not to take any slaves. You don't capture someone else's flock and now it becomes your flock. Oh, thank you, angel. I think I left my water down there. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. So unlike other armies that would go in and take a... Take, take, take the men or women, children, and make them slaves and, and capture the flocks and make them their flocks. Nope, it's all to be destroyed. And any silver, gold, iron, it says, was to be taken for the treasury of the Lord. Again, no personal gain was to be had. They were banned by God for personal use or personal gain, everything dedicated or devoted to God and his purposes. 
In fact, notice in, in, in chapter 6, verse 18, that God warns his people ahead of time. He says, listen, if you take for yourselves things that are meant for destruction, things that are meant to be devoted to me, then I will bring, de- I will bring destruction on you. You will be set up for destruction yourself. And that's exactly what happens in chapter 7. And so we read of this, this word here, devoted thing, karam, in, in, in chapter 7, verse 1. Right where it says the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. And Achan took some of the devoted things. And we, we read about it down in, in, in verse 11 of chapter 7. It's interesting. It, God says that, that they have taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. In fact, the words that are used are very similar to, to how it's, des- it's described in the New Testament for for um, Ananias and Sapphira. They had stolen from God and they had lied. We won't get into that right now. And so this word, in in verse 15, this word, devoted things, is used over and over again. The things that belong to God. But they were taken. They were taken and thus destruction was coming upon the people the presence of God was going to be removed. So just keep that in the back of your mind. A second, second key word here as you study this, this whole, whole section is the word trouble. Trouble. Right? If I remember the, the show, The Music Man, there's trouble in River City, right? <laughs> trouble. In Joshua chapter 6, verse 18, again, God says, keep yourselves from the, from the things devoted for destruction. If not, you're going you're gonna to set yourselves up for destruction and bring trouble upon yourselves. God says, should the people keep for themselves the devoted things, they would end up bringing trouble upon themselves. And such was the case as they lost the battle of Ai and 36 of their men were killed. But I want you to notice, again, chapter 7, verse 25, where it says, and Joshua said to Achan, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. In fact, the valley of Achor is literally the valley of, what do you think? Trouble. The valley of trouble. Not only that, but notice how close Achan's name is to Achor. Achan, Achor. Both of them come from the very same root word in Hebrew, both referring to trouble. It's almost as if Achan was born for trouble. Or at the very least, there was already, as we'll see, trouble in his heart. A third thought that we need to keep in mind here is a thought regarding corporate responsibility. That's the best way I could put it. Corporate responsibility. Joshua 7 verse 1 says, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan took some of the devoted things. Verse 11, Israel has sinned. They've transgressed and so forth. They've stolen, they've lied, and so forth. Right? And, and yet we know that when it's referring to Israel, referring to one man, probably his family as well, Achan. And this is a really hard concept for us today, isn't it? Our knee-jerk response is to say, that was Achan's sin. Why should the whole nation be held responsible? 
Like, that doesn't sound fair. And, of course, we live in a very individualistic society. We're all about, like, our, our individual self. And my salvation is mine. My forgiveness is mine. And this, my sin is mine. But we forget that there's a sense of corporateness throughout the scriptures and that we are all, in a sense, connected. And when we come into relationship with God, we, we are brought into this corporate body called the body of Christ. And in the Old Testament, God's people as a whole were in covenant with God, not just as individuals. And thus, when one of them held on to unconfessed sin, it impacted the whole nation. And thus, the nation itself had to respond to the sin that had been done and brought among them. And so they couldn't just say, well, we have no responsibility here. That was Achan's sin. We're good. God's saying, no, no, no. You as a nation need to take care of this. You as a nation need to do something about it. You as a corporate body. Remember, you know, it's, it's Israel, it's, it's Israel was not just a nation. They were the people of God. They were meant to be the people of God. So let me leave that there for a moment. And I want to move to some lessons to be learned, okay? Because right now our, our minds are spinning a little bit, right? Okay, Pastor, you've given us so much to think about, right? Okay, let, let me just kind of bring it down. Okay, that was all kind of background. Lessons to be learned. The first is this. Sin always begins in the heart. Does it not? Come on, church. Sin begins in the heart. I want you to look at verse, chapter 7, verse 21 here. Where... Achan is making his confession, and he says, When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and then took them. Achan says he saw, he coveted, because something was happening in his heart. Something got stirred in his heart that was already there. He saw, he coveted, and he took. It's the very same progression we see in Genesis chapter 3 with Eve, that Eve saw, then she desired, and then she took. Same progression. In other words, Achan's sin didn't just like suddenly happen. Rather, something had taken place in his heart long beforehand such that when he saw the good, something was stirred in his heart that, that, that began to covet them. His heart began to long after these things. We might say his desire for gold and silver was greater than his desire for God. His desire for worldly goods and material gain was greater than his desire to do what was right for, before God and to live for God. In fact, Achan's confession is really interesting. In verse 20, he says, When I saw among the spoil, then I coveted them and took them. And I want you to notice something. I never saw this before until this week as I'm studying for this morning's message. Achan changes the word. Previously, previously all that stuff was referred to in chapter 7 by God as the devoted things. The devoted things over and over again. It's the devoted things. Someone took the devoted things. Someone took the things that are supposed to be dedicated and devoted to God. None of it to be used for personal gain. But Achan refers to these things. He doesn't say, I coveted and took some of the devoted things. He says, I took the spoil. I took the plunder. I took the booty. 
The word, the word refers to something that, that, that's to be preyed upon, that which a soldier would normally take for himself when he defeated another army or destroyed a city, that which the, the winner considered as rightfully his. In other words, Achan went in, he saw this stuff, and he said, I deserve this. We might say Achan, you know what he did? He downplayed his sin. I wonder how many of us have ever done that. Oh, we come in and we confess to God. Okay, I did this now. But we kind of like change the words. We downplay it. And so Achan, he downplays his sin by referring to what he took as spoil or plunder. In essence, he was, his was not a completely honest confession. His was not a confession of true Repentance. Why? Because you see, something was in his heart. Something had gone wrong in his heart. And I'm reminded this morning that no one just wakes up one day and just happens to fall into gross sin. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, today, I think I want to commit adultery. Or, you know what, today's my day to go out and, and steal something. But today's the day for me, today, this is a great day for me to get up and yell at my wife. No one kind of wakes up like something has been stirring. Something's been happening in a person's heart over time. James wrote, we saw it when we were studying the book of James in chapter 1, right? He says, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And thus, when lust was, has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's run its course, brings forth death. See, this is why Jesus equates lust with adultery and hate with murder. But sin is never just an external event, but rather sin always begins on the inside, in the heart. And this is why Jesus said, first clean the inside of the cup, and the outside then will also be clean. Or as Jesus said, we could apply it, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me ask you, is the presence of God in your life the treasure of your heart? Is Jesus the treasure of your heart? Or has your heart begun to stray? Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And thus time and again, we need to pray with the psalmist, create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And so we're reminded this morning that sin always begins in the heart. The second thing I'm reminded of this morning is that sin is never a private matter. Sin is never a private matter. But sin always impacts those around us. Achan's sin impacted his family. His sin impacted the soldiers who had gone out to battle, 36 of whom lost their lives. His sin impacted a whole nation that came under the judgment of God and was now threatened with the loss of God's presence. I want to I remind us today, our sin is never committed in a bubble. There's always a ripple effect in the lives of those, into the lives of those around us, into our homes, into our community, into our church, into our nation. I mean, think of it. The husband, the father who, who cheats on his wife, what a terrible effect on his family, even for years to come, even on their own spiritual health. 
or the church leader who gives into greed or lust or desire for power. He can't just say, well, it's just my sin. You know, it's just between me and God. No, no, no. How many people in that church, in that ministry have been hurt, have fallen away, have themselves been led into sin? Or that church member who continues to criticize, critique, and gossip the impact it has on their own children and the negative seeds that begin to spread that are spread throughout that church body. Sin is never a private matter. There's always a spillover effect. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, right, we read Paul refers to a man within the congregation there in the church of Corinth who is living in sexual sin. He had taken his father's wife, apparently not his mother, but his father was remarried, and he had taken his father's wife. And Paul says that that man needs to be excommunicated from the church in order that the whole church might not become infected with his sin. In other words, in order that there wouldn't be a ripple effect into that church body. For Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? And we need to be reminded this morning that when you and I give ourselves over to sin, we need to understand it is in no way a private matter. No one can say, well, it's just, this is just my sin, you know, just between you know, me and whatever. But your sin and mine will always impact those around us. And so sin begins in the heart. And when we sin, it leads to, leads to this ripple effect into the lives of those around us. And thirdly, Sin, and I'm talking about unconfessed and unrepentant sin, because, listen, we all sin at some juncture, don't we? We all, we, all, we all mess up, we all fall, we all fail, and thankfully, the New Testament, John writes, listen, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just, he'll forgive you of your sin, and he'll, he'll cleanse you, you know, from all unrighteousness. Aren't you glad for that, right? Right, but right now we're talking about unconfessed sin, sin we try to hide, like Achan tried to hide it in the hole in his tent. And that kind of sin pushes away the presence and the blessing of God. Now, although I was a much smaller city and thus an easier city to conquer, the Israelites lost the battle. They found themselves running for their lives. After all, God was not going to give his people victory when there was sin among them. That would only encourage more sin. And notice when Joshua turns to God in prayer, basically complaining about the loss to God. God, how could you do this to us? What are you going to do about this? God's very direct. He says, listen, this isn't my fault. Your loss was your fault because of sin among you. And where there is sin, I cannot dwell and I cannot bless. God does not bring blessing into the lives of unrepentant sinners. God will not support us in our sin. Can you imagine the father of the prodigal son sending him a monthly check? Well, just in case you, you, you spend all your money on prostitutes and, and drinking and drugs, whatever, you know, everything you're doing out there, don't worry. Here's something to keep you going. Right? The father didn't do that. The father let the kid or the young man hit bottom till he finally repented and turned around and came home. Listen, we would do well to time and again assess our lives and pray with the psalmist before the blessing is lifted, before his presence is removed. Search me, God. Know my heart. Put me to test and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way 
everlasting. Church, that's not a one-time prayer. Maybe that's a daily prayer. Search me, O oh God. Show me where I'm going wrong. Show me where my heart is beginning to wander. Show me where I'm allowing sin to begin to creep into my heart and my mind. Because God, God, I don't want to lose your blessing. I don't want to lose your presence in my life. Because here's the fourth lesson. Without the presence of God, we are in trouble. Hear that? Come on, church. Without the presence of God, we are in trouble. Listen, God, God threatened. He said, I will be with you no more. Do you know that's the worst judgment God could, be, God could bring upon any of us? I'll be with you no more. Do you know what? That's what hell is. I mean, I don't know in the physical or whatever, however we want to describe it. There's, you know, but, but ultimately, hell is a place that is totally void of the presence of God. And without the presence of God at work in our lives, there's no blessing, there's no victory, there's no fruitfulness. The new day we've been speaking of, the promised land, is nothing without the presence of God. In fact, without the presence of God at work in our lives, we are in trouble. As we've seen, where the presence of God resides, amazing things take place. Waters roll back. Walls begin to fall. The people of God begin to taste of or experience great victory and taste of the blessings that God has in the land for them. But remove the presence of God, and all of that's gone. It's all gone. Church, we need to get to that place where we sing again and again like we did earlier. God, I'm desperate for you. I'm lost without you for how we need the presence of God to be with us. For it's his presence that brings us into our new day, into that new day filled with the blessings of God. Without the presence of God, listen, we're in trouble. You can show up to church every week. You can go to your Bible engagement class and read all the devotions. But if your heart's not right with God, if you're not living the way God has called you to live and he thus removes his presence from your life, and you're in trouble. I'm in trouble. Well, let me get to some good news. I promise you there's some good news, okay? Okay. Joshua 7 verse 26 says this. After they went through this stoning, we won't get into all of that today, but just, just read it this way. They were removing the sin from their midst. They were removing sin from their midst. And it says, and the Lord turned from his burning anger. And then in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, we read this. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise. Go up to Ai. They're going back up again. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. Listen, something incredible is happening here. After the people have taken care of the sin among them, we see the incredible grace and work of God among his people. For one, the Lord turns from his anger. Once once the sin has been dealt with, God turns from anger. The implication is that the presence of God 
is renewed, is restored, remains among his people. Because here's the thing. God always responds to a repentant heart. Do we know that this morning? Come on. God always responds to a repentant heart. If you have sin in your life, if something's gone wrong in your life, you know you've transgressed God. Don't run away from him, but run to him. And say, God, this is what I've done. I need you. I need your blessing. I need your help. I need your forgiveness. And like that father in the story of the prodigal son, he's there waiting. He's looking for you, waiting for you to come. He doesn't want to stay angry. He's not, he's not looking to punish you. He's looking to save you and forgive you and renew your life. Come on, don't run from him. Run towards him. So the Lord turns from his anger. And the second thing we see here is that God leads his people into new victory. Joshua and his army, they didn't need to live in fear. Once the sin was taken care of, God would bring to them the victory that he promised them and wanted to give them from the very start. Listen, you turn to God. You turn to him. Confess your sin. You go running to him. God turns from his wrath. He pours grace upon your lives, and he begins to give you new victory in your life. He doesn't want you to live in defeat. He wants to bring you victory. But here's the most incredible thing of all that God gives to his people an unexpected blessing see this time as God gave his people victory at I he doesn't say and destroy everything all those devoted things he says no he says listen that stuff that's there that you're going to find it's plunder it's spoil and you're allowed to take it the goods that are left behind, they're yours. In essence, God was giving to his people from his hand that which was rightfully his. It was an unexpected blessing that flowed out of the grace and the generosity of God. God could have said, listen, and all that stuff that you get in eye, you destroy it, you take it, it's mine. But God says, no, this time it's yours. And you know what I thought of, church? If only Achan had waited... If only Achan hadn't been so quick to try to take for himself. If only Achan had trusted God. Somehow he got into his head, God's trying to keep from me good things. If only he had waited. Come on, church, how often have we run in and we've tried to take things for ourselves, thinking like God's trying to withhold from us, trying to make it happen. If only we would wait upon God. If only we would trust God. He has an unexpected blessing awaiting, awaiting for those who will trust him with their lives. Listen, Jesus said it so well. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you as well. God, your heavenly father knows what you have need of. But don't get wrapped up in that stuff. Seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you as well. Thank you, Kim. Listen, church. We don't need to experience defeat in the promised land. We don't need to fear the loss of the presence and blessing of God. But if we would just trust God with our lives. If we would but seek to do what's right before God each step of the way. If we would guard our hearts that we would remain, um, remain pure and in right relationship with God. If we would live our lives seeking after God rather than seeking the things of this world. Listen, the incredible things is God will take care of you. God will bless you. 
God will lead you into the abundant life. He'll pour out his presence into your life. He'll fill our lives with unexpected blessings as he fills us with his presence. That's the kind of God we have. And when that son returned home to his father, the father didn't keep him just groveling in the dirt. The son says, listen, I'll just come. I'll be your servant. I'll be your slave. And the father lifts him up. And he says, no, you're going to be my son. And he puts a new ring on his finger and a new cloak around him. And he says, we're going to have a party. We're going to feast. My son has come home. That's what God wants to do in our lives. If only we would trust him. If only we would turn to him. God wants to fill your life with unexpected blessing. We would but turn our lives over to him. Amen, church? Come on, we just stand with me. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. And there's a song we're going to sing in just a moment. And the chorus is this, and I want it to be our prayer. I mean, the song starts, holiness. Holiness is, is, is what I long for. Holiness is what I need. And holiness is what you want from me. And it speaks of righteousness and faithfulness. But the, but the chorus says this, so take my heart, form it. Take my mind, transform it. Take my will, conform it to yours. To yours, O oh Lord. Oh, would we make that our prayer this morning? Will we make that our prayer? Can we just start to lead us in that chorus right now? Make it your prayer. Take my heart and form it. Take my mind, transform it. Take my Take my heart and for it. Take my mind, transform it. Take my will, conform it to yours, to yours. Oh, my single time. Sing through from the start of that song. It's our prayer.